invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, as we continue along in our series, proclaiming God's Word from volume 1, Luke, and volume 2, Acts. We cannot overstate the significance of the day of Pentecost that is recorded here in Acts chapter 2. And it's our privilege this morning to be instructed by that record. This is God's holy word. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears him in his own native language? The Parthians and Medes and Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. And then Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ and friends, so we have seen that the early church has begun to take its shape in Jerusalem. The number of twelve apostles has been restored. The teaching and ruling authority in the church is in place and all the members of that church, about 120 of them, are in Jerusalem taking a very humble stance as they are gathered together in the community recognizing what happened to Judas was the fulfillment of prophecy and the only reason why they are members of this church is because God has chosen them by grace to be a part of it and they are constantly in prayer in the early church as they are regularly meeting together. But remember right now that the disciples, the apostles 
in the course of the early church taking its shape, they don't really even know what is going to happen next, do they? You remember when Jesus was still a meeting with them, they asked him before he ascended, they asked him, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And we remember what they meant when they asked that, right? They were probably thinking that in very short order, God was going to bring a very quick judgment on the nation of Israel. Then, (coughs) He was going to restore the nation of Israel very quickly and bring in the glorification, display in its fullness all of the power that He had been displaying only piecemeal in the Gospels, right? As He ministered on earth, He was going to unleash that power fully in Israel, restore that kingdom, and all the nations, in fact, of the world would flood into Israel as Jesus was sitting on the throne of David, to receive the glorification, the blessings of the grace and power of Jesus also. To reverse all of the consequences of sin and all of the guilt and shame of sin throughout all all the world that had been committed to that point. It was finally going to come to an end. That's what the disciples, the apostles were expecting. Now Jesus had told them, look, it's not for you to know the times and He didn't get into all the details. He certainly didn't explain to them as they couldn't possibly have imagined that it would still yet be 2,000 years and now we're waiting still for Jesus to come and unleash the glorification. He didn't get into that with them. All he said was, go back into Jerusalem and await the gift that my Father promised. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. The gift my Father promised. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Whatever that could have meant to the disciples, to the apostles. I want you to see, first of all, that they, they could not have understood what that meant. Uh, For all they know, the gift that the Father promised and the baptism of the Holy Spirit that He was talking about at this point in their minds is the glorification. So they don't know what happens or what's going to happen. So what happened? Well, Pentecost happened. Pentecost. What is Pentecost? That name is the New Testament name. The name that was being used at the time for the Old Testament Feast of Weeks that the Jews celebrated. It was the Harvest Festival. It was an occasion when the Jews would gather together, Exodus 23:16, celebrate the Feast of Harvest with the first fruits of the crops that you sow in your field. It was an opportunity for the Jewish people to come together according to the Old Testament Law of Moses to acknowledge that He is the one who had blessed their crops in the past year and to give Him thanks for His provision for His covenant people, Israel. And what's interesting about that feast in the Old Testament is if you go back far enough, the earliest interpretation of why they were celebrating that holiday was it would be a called... uh, They were called by God to be reminded of the renewal, the covenant renewal ceremony that He had with Noah way back in the ancient world. So the Jews all along, when Pentecost came, were celebrating not only that God had given them a bountiful harvest and that He was the fount of all their blessings, but they were thinking about God's blessing to Noah in the world. And it's important for us to understand that, to get the meaning of the Feast of Harvest, the meaning of the day of Pentecost, because it has something to say about why the Spirit was poured out particularly on that day. What was God doing when He renewed the covenant with Noah? Remember that He was so disgusted with the humanity that He had created that He sent a flood over all the world and destroyed everyone except Noah and his family. 
And what was the purpose of God sparing Noah and his family? What did God say to Noah and his family after he brought them out? Well, he told them the same thing in a different form that he had told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before. And it was what? Be fruitful and multiply. I want you to become, God is saying, to Noah and his family coming out of the ark onto the dry ground. I want you to become and develop into the humanity that I have created you to be. Not a wicked and perverse generation after generation, which Adam and his posterity were. But I want you to be uh, expressing the image of God in purity. God was recreating the world which had plunged itself into sin and disobedience and destruction and frustration and pain and suffering. God is recreating humanity. This is really what Israel would remember when they celebrated the festival of of harvest, the, the feast of harvest. They were thinking... Remember, as Noah was given the covenant that God would continue to let the sun shine and the rain fall until the final end of the world, they are thinking that God, in continuing to give us crops, is allowing the world to continue so that in that world, He is recreating a humanity that will be glorifying to Him. And it's no accident then that the Spirit comes down on the early church in the day of Pentecost because the Spirit is coming now to move God's plan of recreating His world of people who are now glorifying to Him, He is coming to move that plan forward. I mean, up until this point, right, we've seen that the church, by and large, has been confined to one nation of people and to those nations in the ancient world who happened to come into contact with Israel or happened to have uh, immigrants in their own country who had come from the land of Israel and brought Israel's God uh, to those lands, but it was still very confined. And that's certainly not going to cut it for the plan that God has to create to the ends of the earth a humanity that is now glorifying to Him. To fulfill the purpose why man has been created, to glorify Him, to enjoy Him forever. So that's why the Spirit is coming on the day of Pentecost. It's to move God's plan of recreating His humanity forward. And there's a couple of ways in which uh, that happens. You'll see them in the signs that are poured out accompanying the coming of the Spirit. You see first there that uh, the way it's described by Luke, the reports uh, that are uh, the basis of his record, what happens? Suddenly a sound, verse 2, like the blowing of a violent wind, comes from heaven and fills the whole house where they are sitting. Like the blowing of a violent wind. Well, first of all, when that happens, anybody that reads the Bible knows if there's a blowing of the violent wind, obviously that means God is present there and is doing something uh, spectacular. I mean, God's breath is powerful. 2 Samuel 22 The valleys of the sea are exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of breath from his nostrils. Job 37.10, the breath of God produces ice and the broad waters become frozen. Ezekiel 13, this is what the sovereign Lord says, in my wrath I will unleash a violent wind and in my anger hailstorms and torrents of rain will fall with destructive fury. So obviously, this violent wind 
no natural explanation for it, coming out of nowhere, fills this place. Clearly God is present here with His people. But what is He doing? What is He doing? The breath of God. Now, all of us good Bible students know what? That the word spirit, the word breath, the word wind in the Scripture are interchangeable. Sometimes when you read uh, the Holy Spirit or the Spirit in the Scripture, it could be translated wind, could be translated breath. And it's no accident, right, then, that the Holy Spirit uh, appears and is described with this idea of breath. But I want you to think, and wind, but I want you to think about the, the function, actually, that God's breath serves throughout the Scripture. I mean, way back in the beginning of history, Genesis 2.7 the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. So Adam was not alive until what? The breath of God was breathed into him and then he became that living being. Ezekiel chapter 37 we have the vision of the dry bones. The hand of the Lord is upon Ezekiel. And he brings me out by the Spirit of the Lord and sets me in the midst of the valley. And it was full of bones. He led me back and forth and I saw a great many bones on the floor there. They were very dry. How can these bones live? He asked me. And I said, Sovereign Lord, You're the one who knows. You alone know. And He said to me, Speak to these bones and tell them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life and then you will know that I am the Lord. He said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man. This is what the Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. When God breathes, when God blows the wind, as it were, out of His nostrils, out of His mouth, what does it do? It makes men alive who were dead. And when the Spirit is descending on the church, He is empowering the church to be His tool to make dead humanity alive. This is what's happening at Pentecost. The apostles and the church are being empowered now to go forward out into the nations to people who are spiritually dead and who are on track to being physically dead and completely lost and blinded in their sins and miseries and the consequences of sin and all of the curse of the fallen humanity. And the church has been, giving, uh, been given the power of the Spirit to go forward and to breathe life into the dead humanity that's out there, that God is recreating. God is advancing his program to recreate the fallen humanity at Pentecost. That's the positive side of the Spirit's presence here. The Spirit is getting the apostles ready for something that at this point they cannot even imagine. And in that sense that very uh, healing, empowering sense to send the disciples out to recreate the fallen humanity, we see one of the other uh, signs of what happens here. We see these dialects. And uh, please don't be mistaken, in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit is poured out on the church 
And they begin in verse 4 to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. These are not supernatural languages in the sense of, you know, they're different from foreign languages in the earth. But clearly, as you see from the context, these are foreign languages that people are speaking in the world that the disciples, the apostles, are learning supernaturally. So it's not like they go through a a course of, of language study and figure it out. No, the Spirit supernaturally imparts on them the ability to speak foreign languages. And so when they're going about now in the community there, outside, talking about the things that have just happened to them, talking presumably about the things they're praying about before, about all of the glorious deeds of Christ that they have witnessed up to this point, they're speaking as these simple Galilean men in foreign languages so that the people, the the foreign travelers that have come into Jerusalem from all different parts of the world are hearing these men who they know should not be speaking this language and they know have no access even to a language school to learn their language uh, previously to this point, they find him speaking it. The languages are poured out as part of the Spirit empowering the church to recreate humanity. What's that all about? Well, think back to where the whole scrambling of the languages in the world took place in the first place. It happened at the Tower of Babel, according to the Scripture, right? Mankind got together and out of the pride and arrogance of their heart, not after fulfilling the cultural mandate to the glory of God, no. This was to show that they had the resources in and of themselves to expand the world and to boast of their own accomplishments, not giving any glory to God. They got together and they are building. And uh, the Lord sees that and decides to judge them. He gives them a visible sign of, of His anger against their pride, their failure to acknowledge His glory. And do things for him rather than for uh, themselves. And he scrambles their languages, right? And now think about that. Think about the, the consequences of language being scrambled in our world. I mean, what happens when two cultures meet that can't communicate? Well, people are automatically suspicious, aren't they? Behavioral psychologists talk about this thing in our minds, this automatic in-group and out-group hostility, where immediately when you meet someone, you either categorize them as part of the in-group, however broad that group might be and what the parameters of it are, changes or is different for different people. You either assign them to the in-group, which is safe, or to the out-group, which is not safe. And the scrambling of languages has certainly contributed to that problem, hasn't it? Automatically people who are not the same as we are, sometimes for good reasons, right? And sometimes for bad reasons, certainly, are assigned as the out-group and we have suspicion about them. And we may feel threatened by them. Now, sometimes, as I said, that may be for a good reason. Uh, But clearly here and in the scrambling of languages that comes from the Tower of Babel, it caused humanity to come into chaos, and to be all the more suspicious of each other and have really the pride that was at the root of their hearts turned now against each other. And this is part of or the Spirit pouring out these languages so that the apostles can communicate to these foreigners the glorious grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ in their own language, a language they can understand. 
Uh, set aside the fact that it's miraculous itself displaying the power of Christ and the power of His Spirit, which, of course, unbelievers at the time were trying to explain away by saying that they were drunk. This, that's kind of funny, by the way. It reminds us of all of the, <clears throat> the naturalists who will look for human explanations for the origin of our faith. They will look for explanations of how the Scripture can't be true and how there's always holes in the Scripture, supposedly, and uh, natural explanations for all of the great things that are uh, the great redemptive events, miraculous redemptive events that are recorded in the Scripture. Of course, none of those uh, arguments hold water once you examine them. But it was going on in that day, too. It shouldn't surprise us that it goes on today. But in any case, that was a demonstration of the power of the Spirit. A demonstration that God, in giving these uh, tongues, these languages, is looking to alleviate all of the chaos that's been caused in the creation by our own sin and pride. I mean, He is soothing all of the perverse consequences and, and difficulties in relationships and unnecessary violence and wars. This is what He has in mind. This is what He's come to do by pouring out His Spirit on the church. He's sending the church to be the instrument of bringing peace and restoration to a world that is is suffering. Breaking down these walls of the in-group and out-group hostilities. This is the peace-bringing aspect of the church. Of course... I want you to see very clearly also here in the pouring out of the Spirit, not only is the Spirit given to bring grace and peace to sinners and those who are suffering from the consequences of sin and uh, sins against them, but also very much He is empowering the church to be an instrument of judgment on those who will resist the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what uh, verse 3 is talking about. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. I mean, presumably, the tongues that were poured out, I mean, you know, this power of the Spirit as He manifests Himself in this room over the church, uh, presumably, He could have manifested Himself in any number of ways, right? He chose tongues. We've seen why He chose tongues. Why did He choose tongues of fire? Well, if you remember... Back in the Gospel of Luke, John was preaching to the Jews about this when he was preparing the way for Christ. Luke 3.16, John answered them, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And remember we've seen that really all of the acts in all of the actions in the early church in the book of Acts are Jesus' actions. He's continuing to work, although now through the apostles, as we'll see. But first, he's got to prepare the apostles, so he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And what did we say about what that meant? You probably don't remember it now, but the the baptism with fire, when they heard John preaching that, they understood that to be an insult to them. Because the prophecies in the Old Testament about fire coming from God are not about good things. Like, you know, sometimes fire is nice because it gives heat. Sometimes fire is nice because it gives light. But when God talks about fire in the Old Testament, He's talking about judgment. Heat. Burning. 
Suddenly, Isaiah 29, in an instant, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with windstorm and tempest and flames of a devouring fire. The name of the Lord, Isaiah 30, comes from afar with burning anger and dense clouds of smoke. His lips are full of wrath and his tongue is a consuming fire. Isaiah 4, the Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment, a spirit of fire. So, you see, not only is Christ by His Spirit empowering the church to speak words of grace and peace, to undo the chaos, to recreate humanity in the positive sense, but He is also empowering the church to proclaim the law and the fact that the judgment is coming. And you're going to see that played out in the book of Acts. Not only are we going to see a magnificent triumph of the gospel of grace coming into people's lives, where humanity like us are going to hear about our own sins and we're going to flee to Christ and say, yes, I am numbered among those for whom Christ died. I cry out to Him. Have mercy on me. He gives me His words of grace and pardon so that I know that my glorification is coming and He will relieve me from everything. Not only that will happen, but there will be people in the book of Acts just like there are people who hear our preaching, who hear the law of God and they mock it and they reject it. And the ministry of the church in part, in the time between Jesus' ascension and His final return, the time which the book of Acts is talking about and the time in which we still live today, is not only about salvation going out, but it's about a final testimony given to men, women, and children that they are under the wrath of God and that unless they repent, they will be lost forever. So very clearly... The early church is perceiving now that their message can't just be one of only a happy things and nice things and the things that will tickle people's ears, but it has to be also a message of law and judgment and of self-control, one that will drive people to see their need for the gospel. That's the only way people can understand the gospel and what Christ has done anyway. Now, of course, uh, specifically, the the fire being poured out. You remember, John was speaking to the Jews. It was an insult to the Israelites. Of course, part of what Jesus is doing here in His recreation of all of humanity is cutting off, as we've seen, Old Testament Israel as the church. They had been given a covenant. They had broken the covenant. And now they're going to bear the consequences of it. And when Israel gets cut off, when Israel suffers at the hands of the Roman armies and the temple is destroyed, then all of us would be able to look at Israel and say, that is what I deserve because of my sin. And unless God be merciful to me, unless I flee to Christ for His righteous life and blood, I will be lost too. Now quickly, Peter stands up to explain I just want to make two quick points about this. Peter stands up to explain what happened. Two things I want you to notice. In verse 17, he quotes the pouring out of the Spirit as a a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And in verse 17, he says, in the last days. Well, actually, in Joel's prophecy, as it was uh, given to Joel by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and recorded for us, doesn't start with that expression. It actually starts with a more vague expression afterward. 
And Peter interprets that prophecy by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, as being fulfilled in the last days. The last days, not meaning the really short period of time right before the second coming of Christ, but the last days is the time of the life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus all the way until the second coming. We live today in the last days in the same way that the disciples and the early church was living in the last days. Meaning, there are no more great redemptive historical events to happen except the return of Jesus. It's last in a series of great redemptive acts that God has done in history. But it's not like this narrow time right, that we're expecting right at the end. That's not what last days means. But one other point I just want to make before we apply this text very directly to our church and our lives is that not everything that Peter quotes in, from Joel's prophecy is fulfilled at the day of Pentecost. All right? Now, this has puzzled interpreters and causes people all kinds of distress and problems, but I just want you to think about this for a minute. Just because an apostle stands up and he says that what has happened in your midst is fulfilled in this passage, and he reads a section of prophecy, doesn't have to mean that everything that he reads from that prophecy is actually fulfilled at that exact time, does it? I mean, when we stand up in the pulpit and we proclaim God's Word in a sermon, and that's exactly what Peter is doing, what, we read from a section of Scripture, and do we always talk about everything that we've read from that passage? No. A part of the problem here is that Peter, maybe himself at this point, doesn't have a full understanding of the timeline. So he quotes a lengthy section of the prophecy of Joel and he points out that particular things say, although the details of it aren't listed, he says that particular things in that passage clearly have been uh, fulfilled, at least in some sense, at the day of Pentecost, like in verse 17, I'll pour out my Spirit on all people. Okay, the pouring of the Spirit has gone out. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. This is anticipating some of the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit that are active only in the early church, as long as the apostles are around. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth uh, below the wonders and signs performed in the early church, but presumably there are things in this prophecy that aren't fulfilled until later. Verse 20, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. I don't want to get into uh, all of our convictions about what happens here and what happens there, except to make the point, don't fall for the foolish argument that if Peter quotes the prophecy here, then everything in that prophecy necessarily was fulfilled at Pentecost. So what does it mean for us? Okay, well, the, the mission of the church has dignity. Okay? The mission of the church looks outwardly very weak and paltry when you compare it to other organizations in the world. Even when you would compare it to relief organizations in the world doing a lot of good work that we support. The church looks very paltry in its mission when it is despised and rejected by men. But I don't want you to miss what our church, even this local church, by the power of the Spirit, is about. It is about proclaiming the law and the gospel. 
and God is working by the power of His Spirit to recreate His fallen world through us, to usher in the glorification, to speak peace to the nations, to reverse pride and stubbornness and rebellion and to bring in the glorious light of Christ so that people who were lost at the ends of the earth, like all of us were, and some of our ancestors were, and that's why some of us find ourselves here today, were reached with this message that was very foreign and strange to us about the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who sent Christ to live and die for our sins, those of the fallen human race that we didn't even know we belonged to, our first father Adam. Nor did we care. But through the foolishness of the word preached, there is an, a glorious, dignified task that is happening here. I don't want you to lose sight of that. That we have the privilege of being part of the extension of the glorious gospel of Christ and the ushering in of the glorification, the recreation of God's humanity as His people. That should enliven us to be faithful in our outreach and prayer that we continue to press ourselves about, that we will continue in the new year even again to lay before ourselves as a congregation. It should encourage us to be self-sacrificing in support of the church and of our church plants, of the Spanish ministry and of other things, as we see the great dignity and power of what Christ is doing through His church. It should also keep us in mind that the church's mission is not always a happy one. Nor will our preaching always be happy. But we will be sounding the law and judgment. We will not be seduced by a culture, even by a Christian church culture, that designs their messages after what people want to hear, as if that supposedly helps them. Not only will we speak joy and grace and peace and the power of Christ for forgiveness of sins, but we will preach judgment to those who reject Him with the fervent prayer that they will see their need for Him and flee to Him while He still may be found. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the beginning of the uh, progress of the expansion of recreated humanity and we're part of it even this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for these uh, words of encouragement. Thank You for the power of the Spirit which has been poured out on Your church. And uh, Lord, we account it a great privilege to be part of that ministry. And we know that Your Spirit is still alive today. And though He is not uh, displaying Himself in the signs and wonders and in the ways in which He did at the day of Pentecost, uh, we don't look with the uh, eyes of, of sight. We look with the eyes of faith. And we rest on the uh, extension of the Gospel that is ensured by the power of Your Spirit uh, unleashed on that day. Thank You for our heritage in the day of Pentecost and the power of Your Spirit to go forward to fulfill our task. Strengthen us for that as Your church. Shape us according to the instruction of Your Spirit by the apostles through the book of Acts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Our song is number 400. We got to uh, hear and... I'm sorry, did I say 400? 337. We got to hear and enjoy 
of this song at the outset of the service, and now we get to uh, sing it ourselves together all as a congregation. Let's sing these uh, three stanzas. Keep this in mind. This is why Christ came, and this is why the Spirit empowered the church, to bring joy to the lost world. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, the three stanzas together. Please be seated. Oh, let's just enjoy now the power of the Spirit displayed among us, shall we? We have a form for public profession of faith, page 132 behind the songs if you'd like to turn there. <clears throat> 